0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back
1: to the latest Critic podcast. Much of Europe is now open again for the British summer holidaymakers, but how different are the aims and experiences of leisure travellers to Europe now
0: compared to the 18th century? The Critics' political editor Graham Stewart talks to Professor Jeremy Black, author of The British Abroad, Italy and the Grand Tour, France and the Grand Tour, and most recently, A Short History of the Mediterranean,
1: about what British travellers used to get up to overseas. The
0: great European summer holiday is back as quarantine restrictions for Britons returning from travelling abroad are eased. For some, this means beaches, food and landscapes. But for many, it's a chance to be reacquainted with cultural treasures. In doing so, they're in the footsteps of well-to-do British gentlemen who in the 18th century really started the vogue for what became known as the Grand Tour. Uh, Jeremy Black... There's a long history, obviously, of travel between Britain and the European continent. You yeah. know, for centuries uh, there was the pilgrimages to the great Christian sites, and also um, also traders um, going through Europe. But in essence, it was in the 18th century that that the idea of travelling to Europe for cultural enrichment manifested itself. Is that true, or actually was it a repackaging of something that had been going on for quite a long time before that?
1: Um, Well, for so much a repackaging, I'd say it became more common. There had always been some people that had travelled for cultural reasons, and the numbers of those, though still modest, had increased after the Thirty Years' War in the second half of the 17th century. But I think you're absolutely right. It became more common in the 18th. And in particular, after Britain had been at war with France with only one brief interlude between 1689 and 1713. And after that, um, travel became more common.
0: And uh, um, how would how would this undertake itself? Would they need any form of of letters of introduction as a form of passport, or could they just get on a get on a boat and and cross the channel and take it from there
1: Well it depended it was far less uh, rigor uh, regulated than today uh if you were a commissioned officer in the army, yes, you should have permission, but the practicality was that um you didn't really need, as it were, what you would call a system of letters of introduction uh, because you could determine what you were planning to do at the other end. I mean, if you were somebody of sufficient social eminence, as it were, you didn't need an introduction. You only needed an introduction if your social eminence was not quite at the the key element. Um, Where you would have a letter that would help you is usually you would have... Uh, let, a letter on your London banker, let's say, Mr. Hall, uh And that would be on his French correspondent, in other words, a French banker in Paris, and that would be a credit to a certain amount of money. And the idea is you would present yourself uh, at the banker and he would give you money and that he would then issue you with a letter on his correspondent at the next major place you were going to. Now the next court you were going to if you were going into Italy was Turin. So he would present you with a letter of introduction on his his correspondent, as it were, in Turin.
0: And uh, we're in a period in the eighteenth century before the mass production of guidebooks. They started to come in, in in the in the eighteen thirties, eighteen forties. But um, how how would uh, the well-to-do plan their their trip, and would they have a a guide with them, or would they hire a succession of guides as they as they travelled through throughout Europe?
1: Well, there's no set pattern, and it often depended upon your age. But if you were a young man, you would usually go with what was known as a bear leader, who would be a travelling tutor, usually a clergyman, usually dependent on your father, and um, he would have an idea of the itinerary. When you arrived in a particular place, though, you would usually hire somebody called a lacque de place, and he would show you round the sights of the the place. If you were also going to a capital city, where there was a a British envoy, uh, you would expect to be received and entertained by the envoy if you were of sufficient social eminence, and he would also provide you uh, with suggestions of what to see. Now, in terms of your general itinerary, there was no absolutely fixed uh, course. It depended upon how much time you had. If you didn't have much time, generally a grand tour would be to go to Paris to go to the major cities of the austrian netherlands we would call them belgium so that's Ghent, brussels and antwerp and to go to the united provinces modern netherlands and that was known sometimes as the little tour if you had more time you would follow a longer itinerary but again it wasn't completely fixed Um, you would generally be wanting to go to paris and then italy but there are a number of routes to italy Um, And you might or might not, on the route there or the route back, also include an excursion through some of the major centres in the Holy Roman Empire. So Munich, Vienna, Prague, Berlin, Hanover. Um, And all of these would in turn be affected by the season of the year, so that you would not be trying to pass the Alps in the depths of the winter, where you wouldn't be able to. Um, you don't want to be in southern italy or indeed rome until the pontine marshes are drained in the malaria season so you'd want to get out of there in june um, and you would also if you were visiting particular places venice for the carnival regio Emilia for the opera uh, you would want to be there in the season so in practical terms there was actually a need for planning but to to a considerable extent, um, that need was individual, a matter of, of preference and convenience.
0: And uh, there was a, a general set time in which the, the Grand Tour would take place in terms of you know, weeks, months or, or years, or um, in essence, how, how, how quickly were these trips undertaken?
1: Well, again, there was no set pattern at all. Uh, I mean, if you were going to Italy and France, uh, you really did need uh, to think about over a year, although you could do it in less. But if you were going to just, say, Paris and the Low Countries, you could do that in six weeks easily. Um, Some people travelled for a very long time. Uh, John 4th Earl of Sandwich, after whom the Sandwich is named, for example, um, hired a yacht in the uh, Mediterranean and, you know, spent several years abroad so you could take quite a time um and the same thing i mean you mentioned uh, in the introduction uh, young men it's true that the majority of people were young men but there are also young women travelling usually with their uh, fathers um sometimes with their husbands and there are also people later in life travelling either as married couples as individuals Uh, is larger family groups or with friends. And they obviously would therefore have to consider their own convenience as a group, plus um, the dynamics of issues such as whether they fell out with each other, uh, whom they met and uh, what the relationships uh, therefore arising were, etc., etc.
0: And uh, for those who were younger, they they would do it after school or, or private tutoring and before university, or was it something they did after university?
1: Uh, You are so wonderfully polite, Graham. Many of these people would have regarded going to university as just totally naff. I mean, you know, I mean, university was not something that a lot of people went to of the from the social elite. And if they did, they might only go for a term or a year just to have the experience of being there. Um, the need to take a degree was very much that which was needed for somebody who wanted to, as it were, follow a career in the church. Um, but if you were an aristocrat, you didn't de- need to do that. So, um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, in their late teens was the classic uh, period to go. Um, the it, it would partly depend upon career. If you were an aristocrat or not an aristocrat who'd gone into the army, Uh, It might be that in a period of peace that you'd have the time to do so, and that it would be convenient or appropriate to do so. It might be that your father gave you some money to get out of his hair, or to get out of the country, or to sow your wild oats abroad. And and again, you were very kind at the beginning when you said that people were either going on to to, as it were, uh, you know, for culture or as it were, to look at the landscape. In fact, for many people, shall we say, going abroad offered them opportunities to pursue drinking, womanising, socialising in ways that were more um, liberal than what might be convenient to their families at home.
0: And and those who were going to, to the flesh pots, uh, where, where would they head to?
1: Well, the most famous courtesans of Europe were in Venice. Um, and it was a fairly also well established practice in Italy, and I, you know, I quote this at some length and with some rather lurid details in my book on the uh, the British abroad. Um, it was fairly uh, established practice that, um, shall we say, marriages of the Italian elite were often arranged for matters of family contact and convenience. Um, that subsequently it was perfectly acceptable for a married woman with the knowledge of her husband to have a younger admirer, the assumption always being that he was her lover. And quite a few British aristocrats uh, came into that uh, came into that role. In fact, I quote somebody as saying that, you know, that, you know, between the thighs of a certain named Italian countess was the best way for a young man to have his education. Um, but obviously there were other connections which were straightforward prostitution. Um, and indeed, I mean, you know, we're not just talking about men. I mean, you know, um, if you're thinking, for example, of Sir Robert Walpole when he was prime minister, his wife, he and his wife became estranged. And his wife would go round Europe with um, gentlemen admirers expecting, as the wife of the Prime Minister, to be introduced at court by the British ambassador. Or again, you have the interesting activity of Princess Caroline, the um, um, wife of the uh, Prince Regent. And of course, this was all sort of rather discussed in the rather lurid case that came up apropos of their divorce so i mean i think it was fairly well established that um there were opportunities on the continent to live in a very different fashion uh, to what you would do at home and i and again you know you kindly mentioned my book on italy and the grand tour i've got quite a few instances of that and you know some of them really at the height of society i mean george the third's brother prince edward um, you know, the Duke of York, um, turned up, for example, on one of his grand tours um, with his lady friend. And, you know, that sort of thing would be regarded as perfectly normal.
0: And, I mean, this is a period, particularly in the first half of the 18th century, where there's still a lot of fear of Catholicism. And yet after they, the travellers pass out of northern Germany, they are... In Catholic Europe, indeed heading to places like Rome, was there a sense in England that that you know, there was a danger that the the flower of the British aristocracy was uh, in danger of being uh, a, a compromised by the the love of Catholic europe Yes,
1: I mean this was very much a matter of concern during the Jacobite period because it 's not just the Catholics were there it's um uh, the james the second J- his son the old pretender james the third um uh charles edward Stuart. their court variously was at rome at bologna which was a papal town or at avignon and yes so i think um, um, that's very much a matter of concern and certainly the british in the first half of the century Kept tabs on what tourists were doing in Rome, um, where you know the papacy recognised the Jacobites as the rightful kings. I think this becomes less serious from the 1760s. I mentioned George III's brother; he was introduced to the Pope, and it becomes—and the Pope, of course, doesn't recognise Charles Edward Stuart as king. So the situation just does change there. But prior to that, yes, it was there was a very interesting aspect to it, as well as the fact that, of course, Britain's principal enemy was France, and uh, and yet one of the major destinations of British tourists, um, um, you know, uh, was, was Paris. By the way, I've got a quote from Lady Knight, who was scandalized about couples traveling in Europe, particularly in Italy, with people who were not their husbands or their wives, Um they talk and act as their convenience directs. I am told law civil and divine are not any guide to their words and actions. Our present travelling ladies out herod Herod, or to speak more modernly, live with more effrontery than even their teachers, the French ladies. (laughs) There you go. I mean and you know, I can be I can give you quotes that were considerably more direct and to the point, but probably not acceptable on radio. Um, but uh, the i think it's fair to say that there was a, a sense of psychological sexual uh, religious and political edge to travel which is not that which you would now attribute to shall we say modern tourists going to shall we say Spain Italy or France
0: and uh, is there much record of what uh, french or italian uh, people felt about the the English melodie, uh coming. Did, were they welcomed, or was there a sense of oh, these ghastly Anglo Saxons um, coming here? You know, was it the equivalent of of a, of a elongated stag party?
1: Uh, on the whole, they were welcomed. Uh, I mean, they were provided a source of um, widening the social amb- ambit. Um, for the elite, who often as you know were, were bored, only had a certain number of people that it was acceptable to socialize with, um, and for others, they represented a the source of, of of employment and income uh, and entertainment i mean and you know if you read a Jane Austen novel, you will get this enormous sense of how any stranger coming into a community provides an enormous uh, sort of source of conversation and uh, you know I think that one was very much in that light. Uh, By the way, going back to this issue about travel abroad being, um, being not acceptable, you'll remember in the importance of being earnest, that when the um, you know um, the alleged brother um, dies in Paris, this is very much and you know the circumstances of his death this is very much seen as unacceptable by uh, uh, Miss Prism. and Canon Chasuble has to reproach her for a, her unchristian response you know the idea that going to Paris and living there and then dying there etc had, had betokened a life that was scarcely serious and that was obviously full of violence. I mean by now by the time you get to Oscar Wilde uh, writing this is he's making fun but what he's actually doing is making fun of attitudes that were still present that you know that there was a division um uh, to a certain extent a social division to a certain extent a religious division and it's worth bearing in mind that alongside the elite that go on the grand tour there are some who never travel abroad um, you know, from George III or Sir Robert Walpole. Um, and there are other people, other members of the British elite right through into the 20th century, the mid-20th century, whose idea of recreation is not to go abroad. You know, the notion is that you're loose if you go to the Riviera, instead of which what you do is you go to... Um, the moors and you go blasting pheasants out at the sky or you go fishing uh, if you're going to travel abroad you might go to norway say for the fishing by the 1930s um but the idea of going to the uh, to the riviera is very much associated with the fast crowd and i think again that's interesting
0: was the Grand Tour a one-way uh, travel, by which I mean, was it was it just something that, that British gentlemen and, and high-born women did, or uh, was it common throughout Europe, and so were there also French, Italian, German aristocrats making their way to, to Britain?
1: Yes, there were... Certainly that, and also indeed making their way elsewhere within Europe, um, but nevertheless, two things. First of all, the British were distinctly regarded as being spending more money, being more active, and then of course Britain was the economic success of 18th century Europe. Um, as far as foreigners coming to Britain is concerned, they come for a whole host of reasons, including seeking money, um, you know, being employed, becoming monarchs after 1714. But as far as leisure is concerned, uh, the great focus was London. And you get London being the place that is most mentioned by foreign commentators Um, and it was a um, very distinct environment it was uh, a matter for them of enormous interest because here is a city that is not defined by the royal court it is a city that is very much a place of enterprise it seemed to be the cutting edge of modernity Uh, People like Montesquieu or Voltaire, both of whom went there, present um, British culture accordingly as particularly successful because it's tolerant uh, both of religion and of opinion and because royal power is limited by parliament. So all of those are of interest. I remember coming across a guidebook for French people to or French speakers, I should say, to to Britain published in 1740, 120 pages, 112 of those pages were about London. Uh, The other places worthy of visit were Canterbury, because obviously it was on the way, Um, Windsor, um, Newmarket, um, you know, just places in the southeast of England. Um, And I think it's fair to say that you do later in the century get some tourists, particularly people interested in economic Uh, economic development who travel more widely and go and see the great economic sites um, canals factories steam engines thomas jefferson when he came to england uh, the two things that he really wanted to see were country house gardens but also the great sites of industry and he goes as far from london uh, as the west midlands he visits the Soho works in Birmingham of James Watt and is really interested. I mean, this is the culture end of of modernity. It's like Deng Xiaoping when he went to, uh, you know, to visit the United States during the Carter administration, was taken to see the Boeing factory in Seattle, was taken to see the NASA headquarters. Uh, People want to see what's different and what's at the cutting edge. What they don't want to particularly see is the old and I think this is a big difference uh, the same if you're looking at British tourists to the, to the continents if you're going to Paris um, you want to go and see the new you're interested in the grand dramatic buildings of Louis XIV and of the 18th century so you're interested in the Invalides, the Madeleine Uh, You're not interested in going to see sort of smelly places around the Marais, which are sort of older. And you've got exactly the same. If you look at tourists coming to to England, they're in London. They're interested in seeing Greenwich. um, They're interested in seeing... Bank of England. They're interested in seeing the East India Company headquarters at Leadenhall Street. Uh, They're not interested in seeing um, sort of medieval remains. And the medieval is is associated not with um, sort of quaintness and charm. It's associated literally with smelliness um, and it's associated with decay. Uh, And of course, the sensibility of culture is a very interesting aspect of it. And um I mean it, it affects also the the response to Italy, that in Italy, um, the, um, there's an interest in the art of the Baroque, for example, in Bernini. Um, there's no real interest, in, well very little interest indeed in the 18th century, and shall we say, the period of Giotto of Kimabe, uh, because that that's not, that is not part of their artistic uh, sensitivity.
0: And for Britons travelling in, in Europe, what, what did they come back with uh, other than uh, uh, artistic um, experience and perhaps a desire to have their houses built in an Italian classical style?
1: Well, they came back with all sorts of things. Some of them came back as better informed xenophobes. Some of them came back understanding uh, the difference between a culture where you had to be into a city by a certain time because the gates were literally shut. (laughs) Whereas, you know, obviously British society was much freer. Um, Some of them came back with venereal disease. I mean, you know, the range of what they came back with is enormous.
0: And when did this start to wind down, and and, and why?
1: Well, the French Revolutionary Wars are an enormous... Um, breach if you like with the continuity Uh, not so much because of what goes on in france because there had been problems hitherto with you could travel to france during wartime but for example the packet boats across the channel stopped Uh, but more because of the expansion of the french revolutionary armies and also the extent to which Uh, their brutality, particularly in Italy and the Rhineland caused resistance and you get general instability and disorder and then of course under Napoleon he locks up the interns British tourists so you get a big discontinuity and it's at the same time as of course the British are discovering their own landscape the fascination with the Lake District um, with the Scottish Highlands which begins slightly beforehand but which really gathers pace Uh, at the end of the um, uh, the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, was so-called Romanticism. After 1815, well, actually, Napoleon is first kicked out in 1814. After you know Napoleon first falls, and then after he falls more dramatically with Waterloo, there's a massive increase in British tourism to Western Europe. People that had been there prior to, um, uh, prior to the revolution, in fact, complain about too many tourists. Um, but there's also changes in the pattern of British tourism, and this is quite interesting. The more, shall we say, exotic tourism uh, starts to look more to the east, um, and that becomes a matter of greater fascination. It's still a matter of danger and disease, but a greater fascination. Um, Within Europe itself, whereas most 18th century tourists had had been primarily interested in visiting cities, um, in the 19th century, there's much more of an engagement with landscape, particularly the Alps. And um, with beaches or with seaside resorts, particularly the Riviera, so that whereas in the 18th century you'd wanted to become a member of the pre-existing elite in a major city, whether it was Paris or London, uh, Rome or Venice, By, let's say, 1850, you didn't. Your views were very, I'm not saying nobody did, but your views, your vistas were were contrasting. You were maybe more global, more interested in the landscape, uh, more willing to cross the Atlantic, uh, particularly once steamship services uh, were introduced. So the pattern of tourism changes enormously. And the last point on that is, of course, uh, package tourism comes in uh, most prominently, though not only Uh, with cooks and that again changes the social dynamic and the as it were appeal of mass tourism in in western europe
0: and with that mass tourism it no longer becomes so fashionable to go on a grand tour because you're just doing what uh what the 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 higher end of the middle classes are also are also doing as well by then would that be fair to say
1: it would be fair to say, but there's also differences. I mean, your grand tour might involve, for example, you know, shooting um, tigers in India. Um, you know, so there could still be a grand tour, but it could take a different form. Um, but I think, yes, there is there is very much a different uh, set-up. Though if you read the novels of the period as well as the correspondence, but uh, if you look at the novels which often present you with an image of what you as it were, might, should be doing, I think Planty Palliser goes and takes, you know, his wife on honeymoon and they go you know on a continental train journey to i can't remember where they're going precisely my memory isn't as good as that because i read it many years ago but i seem to remember they're going to the alps you know so it's not as though people don't go to to europe it's just that the elite has to be aware that there are many more people there than they might ordinarily wish to rub shoulders with
0: and now we find ourselves in a world where Thomas Cook is, uh, is uh, no, longer, no longer trading. So uh, we'll have to leave it there. Jeremy Black, thank you very much for taking us on a grand tour. A pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www thecritic.co.uk